Thank you, Tanner, for reading our scripture tonight. We're going to be looking at John 3, verses 14 and 15, the passage read a moment ago by Tanner. And we appreciate your presence. We want to wish all of our, our mothers here tonight a very happy Mother's Day. Hopefully, everyone's had a great day. We appreciate you, and we want to honor you. And one day's not enough, but we're very grateful for the time that we have to recognize you and honor you for all that you do. In many ways, motherhood is a thankless job, and yet I'm sure it's a joyful job, and we appreciate, we appreciate each and every one of you. I think about the words of Abraham Lincoln when he said, all that I am I owe to my mother, and a lot of truth in that. Tonight I want to call attention to John 3, verses 14 and 15. Before we get started, I do want to just make mention of the fact that last, last Sunday I was away and McKinley preached in my absence, and I know that McKinley is very appreciative of what's going on here at Olive Branch. I know that he appreciates very much the support that we give him. And I had the opportunity to go home last week to Chattanooga and to speak at the congregation where I grew up. And I made the statement it was the 100th anniversary of this congregation. And they had some old directories and pictures out and one of the pictures that they had out was a picture of me and my family when I was about 14, 15 years of age. And I made the statement that if somebody had told me at that age, you'll be back here and you'll be preaching for our 100th anniversary, I would have said, you're absolutely crazy. No way. Never in my wildest dreams did I ever think about preaching. As a matter of fact, I would never have imagined that I would have become a preacher. But I'm grateful that I'm grateful for the turn of events and for the opportunity that I've had for many, many years to preach and teach. And I think about the fact that there are some young men here that it might be the case that one day they'll be standing in this pulpit and they'll be preaching for an anniversary. Or it might be the case that they are the regular preacher here. To me, that would be, I can't think of any, anything any greater. And so lots of young men that have that ability. In John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The Old Testament as Paul said in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, was written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. There are some tremendous lessons to be learned from the Old Testament. In John chapter 3, Jesus brings to mind a type of salvation that would ultimately occur on Calvary that did occur in the wilderness. And as he makes reference to the serpent that was lifted up in the wilderness, that was a type of the universal salvation that would be offered to the human family through the lifting up of himself on Calvary. So tonight I want us to think for a minute or two about the serpent and the Savior because there's a correlation and I want to begin by going back to the book of Numbers, chapter 21. In Numbers, chapter 21, 
we have an account of the children of Israel being bitten by serpents. And this is exactly what Jesus was talking about in chapter 3, verse 14, when he said, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. So I want to begin tonight by calling attention, first of all, to a problem that Israel experienced, and then the prescription that Israel embraced. And what we want to do is then jettison forward in time and note what the Lord had to say and how he made application of this event to the lifting up of himself on Calvary. First of all, look at verse 4. In verse 4, Moses writes of the discouragement of the people. The text says that they journeyed from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. You can go back and you can read the accounts set forth in the first five books of the Old Testament about the children of Israel after they had been delivered out of Egyptian bondage. And you'll see that on any number of occasions they became discouraged. This was no doubt a situation that provoked great discouragement on their behalf. So in verse 5, the text says that the people spoke against God and against Moses. They voiced their displeasure. They asked the question, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water and our soul loathes or detests this worthless bread. It's hard for me to imagine people that had been delivered by the gracious hand of God. God would tell Moses back in Exodus chapter 19 how he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bore them on eagles' wings and, as he said, brought them unto himself. To think that they could be delivered by the, man, by the mighty hand of God and then lose faith in him. So look at verse 6. Verse 6 speaks of death. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Now look, if you would, at the declaration made by the people. They said, as recorded in verse 7, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. So here you have their declaration and their plea for deliverance. They wanted God to intervene on their behalf so that they might live, and understandably so. Now I want you to look at verses 8 and 9, because in verses 8 and 9 we have the prescription that is given by the Lord addressing the problem that they were experiencing. As you look at this prescription that is set forth, note what God says to Moses. Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and so it was if a serpent had bitten anyone, 
When he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. I mentioned a moment ago that this serves as a type of the salvation that has been offered to the human family through the death of Jesus on Calvary's cross. In looking at the prescription that is set forth by God in heaven, there are some things that we need to think about in connection with how they relate to the salvation that we enjoy today in Christ. First of all, their salvation involved an education. They had to be educated about the prescription that was given for their remedy. God had told Moses in the long ago to make that fiery serpent, put it on a pole, and then he said when somebody is bitten, when they look at that pole, what would happen? They would live. God graciously intervened on behalf of the children of Israel, thereby providing them with an opportunity for life. So they had to be educated about this fiery serpent. They had to understand the instructions that if they were bitten, then they were mandated to look at that pole. And the Bible says, if they did that, they would live. So you have an education and linked to that an expectation. If they were going to live after having been bitten by the fiery serpents in the wilderness, what did they have to do? They had to do exactly what God said. God in his grace provided a means of escape, didn't he? In other words, he provided an out. Liberation, if you please. And we could easily use education and liberation. But there is education. They had to be educated about this fiery serpent and this pole. They had to be instructed on what to do. The regulations, they had to comply with those. And then if they did that, what happened? Emancipation. In other words, they would live. Listen to what the record says again. Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole. It shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. Now look at verse 9. So Moses made a bronze serpent, put it on a pole. And so it was if a serpent had bitten anyone. When he looked at the bronze serpent... He lived. I want to ask you a question. What in the world does a bronze serpent have to do, medicinally speaking, what does that have to do with anybody being saved after having been bitten by a snake, a fiery serpent? I don't know of any medicinal purposes. I know this. God said, if you want to live, this is what you've got to do. I know this, that if the people in that day, if they didn't comply with the instructions that were given, rather than living, they would have died. So it took on their part, faith, a willingness to be receptive to the instructions of Almighty God, and then they had to obey, did they not? If they hadn't obeyed the voice of God, would they have lived or died? You know the answer. They would have died, wouldn't they? 
Now, let's move forward and look at John chapter 3 again. In John chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus takes the people of that day back to this occurrence. They were familiar with the events that had gone on among their ancestors. And so Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The salvation that Israel enjoyed in the wilderness was a type of the universal salvation that can be experienced or enjoyed by all people today. Now I want to just change the format a little bit of the outline and so that we can see exactly what the Lord is saying here, I want to do it this way. I want you to think about the problem that we as members of the human family have experienced. The problem in the wilderness, the people had complained, they were discouraged, they voiced their displeasure, God sent fiery serpents among them, and they died. They cried out for deliverance, and God delivered them. He set forth a remedy. There is a universal problem that we face in the world today, it's called sin. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. John said in 1 John chapter 5 that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Jesus said that men love darkness rather than light. There are a lot of people in the world today that do not understand the problem of sin. Ezekiel said many, many centuries ago, the soul that sins, it shall surely die. The danger of sin is that if we die in a sinful condition, we'll be lost. Had the children of Israel not had God to intervene on their behalf, demonstrating a gracious response to them, they would have died, would they not? God in heaven designed a plan whereby we could enjoy the blessings of forgiveness and escape the condemnation that comes with sin. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, Paul said, The wages of sin is death. But he said, The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So you can weigh the two against one another. You live in sin, you die. You obey the Lord, you enjoy life. The problem of sin was met by God before He ever laid the foundation of the world. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, the Apostle John spoke of the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. God said through the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 that He chose us in Him, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. And then He said, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He has made us accepted in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. So God in heaven devised a plan. 
I want you to listen to what Jesus said again. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must. Look at that word must. Must the Son of Man be lifted up? That's an obligation, a divine obligation, an absolute. What Jesus is saying is, in order for man to be saved, the Son of Man must be lifted up. In Matthew 16, 21, after the Apostle Peter had acknowledged Jesus as the Son of the living God, the Bible tells us that from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. Note again that word must. He must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and raised again the third day. God's eternal plan was to save, to redeem the human family in His Son, Jesus Christ. Why did God reach out to the human family? Why did God make salvation available to us? Let me tell you why. Because number one, He loves us. God in heaven loves each and every one of us. Listen to what Jesus said in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, the love of God, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul said, But God, who is rich in mercy, for the great love wherewith he loved us, God reached out to us because he loved us and because we are the pinnacle or the crown of his creation. We have been made in the image and the likeness of Almighty God. Go back and read Genesis 1, 26 and 27. What is it that makes us like God? We have an eternal spirit. We will live forever. We have the ability to make choices in life. You look at the Garden of Eden and the problem that came upon the human family, sin. Sin entered the world, and because of sin, mankind was separated, alienated from Almighty God. As Paul would say, without hope and without God in this world. The difference maker, however, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Jesus came to execute the will of God. None of this would have been possible had it not been for the grace of God. Do you know why Israel was saved in the wilderness? Because of the grace of God. Do you know why God is willing to save people today? Because of His grace. God reaching out to us, doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. I mentioned Ephesians chapter 2 a moment ago. Paul said, by grace have you, have you been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Paul would say in Titus chapter 2, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to every man, instructing us to the intent that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So God has manifested His grace his grace and kindness to a lost and dying world of which we're a part. Now somebody might ask the question, what, what is sin? Sin has been defined as the transgression of the law by John in 1 John 3 verse 4. Sin is a missing of the mark. And so God has remedied, He has given us a remedy, a prescription if you please, 
for the problem of sin. So here's the question. If I'm going to avail myself of this divine remedy, this divine prescription, what then is involved? Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now if you go back and look at Numbers chapter 21, I mentioned a moment ago, their deliverance involved education, did it not? If I'm going to enjoy the blessings and the privileges of the grace of God, then I have to be educated. In other words, I have to be instructed about some things. I have to understand the nature of sin and the fact that I stand in need of the blood of Jesus. I have to be educated. I have to be taught that. Now the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You can thumb through the book of Acts and over and over and over again you'll read of conversion stories. Every conversion story fits hand in glove. Some of the people that were converted were at a different place in their spiritual lives. But nonetheless, they all did the same thing. And by doing the same thing, they all procured the same, the same benefits, the same blessings. So what about the blood of Christ? Paul had said to the church at Ephesus that those who are outside a covenant relationship with God, they're without hope and without God in this world. In verse 13, though, he said, but now in Christ Jesus, you that once were far off are made near by the blood of Christ. I have to understand something about the blood of Christ. That Jesus went to the cross and shed his blood for my sins. John 19, verse 34, the Bible talks about the soldier that pierced the side of Jesus with a spear. Blood and water came forth. John said unto him who loved us and washed us from our sins by his own blood. No one will ever be saved apart from the blood of Jesus. Those who lived under the period of the patriarchs, those who lived under the Mosaic dispensation, their salvation hinged on, hinged on the blood of Christ. Those of us alive today, our salvation rests upon the blood of Christ. So in Ephesians 1, 7, Paul said, In Him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. So God's grace has been manif manifested. God's grace is ready to bless. But here's the question. If I understand what the Bible teaches, in order for me to procure the benefits and the blessings of the grace of God, the mercy of God, and the blood of Christ, there's some things I've got to do. I've got to be educated about the blood of Christ and about the body of Christ. Because you see, the saved are in the body. Now somebody might ask the question, what do you mean when you talk about the body? The body I'm referring to is the church. The Bible says he's the head of the body of the church, which is the beginning. 
the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. The church is God's divine institution, established on Pentecost Day, bought with the blood of Christ, Acts 20, 28, built by Jesus himself, Matthew 16, 18, and it contains the saved, Ephesians 5, 23. Paul said that Christ is the Savior of the body. So I've got to understand the benefits and the blessings of the blood of Christ. I've got to know something about the body of Christ because I need to be in that body. So I have to be educated. I have to be instructed. And then the expectations. What is it God expects from me? Now, there are a lot of people in the world today that say you don't have to do anything. Well, if you don't have to do anything, why do you think the people on Pentecost Day, when they were pricked in their hearts, cried out unto Peter and the rest of the apostles and said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Obviously, they realized that there was something they had to do. And here's what Peter said. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And he said, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2, verse 38. When they did that, God placed them in the church, Acts 2, 47. Now, why were they baptized into Christ? Well, they had to be baptized into Christ so that they might appropriate the blessings of forgiveness, of redemption. Well, I thought God saves the human family because of, by His grace. Well, He does. God has graciously given us a plan. He has articulated a plan to us whereby we can be saved. So what is it then that God requires of me? What does God want me to do? Pentecost Day, they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? I have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, don't I? Did Jesus not say, except you believe that I am he, you'll die in your sins, John 8, 24? Did he not say that if you die in your sins, where I am, there you can't come? The Lord expects me to believe in him. The Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, without faith, it's impossible to be pleasing to him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So I have to have faith in God. The kind of faith that is motivated to act, to obey. And then I have to repent of my sins. I've got to turn away from a life of sin. Peter said on Pentecost Day again, repent. Repentance is not easy. As a matter of fact, repentance is hard, isn't it? Putting to death a sinful way of life. Paul said, they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and lust. That's repentance. Dying to the love and the practice of sin. And then to confess with my mouth that I believe Jesus to be the Son of God, just like the eunuch did. And then I've said, the Bible says that I am to be baptized or immersed in water so that every sin can be washed away. Saul of Tarsus said that he was instructed by Ananias to arise and be baptized and wash away his sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now when I do that, 
What are the benefits and the blessings that I enjoy? I enjoy every spiritual blessing known to man. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul said that God has placed all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. There are no spiritual blessings outside of Christ. And so in order for me to appropriate the benefits of those blessings, I have to be in Christ. Well, where is salvation? It's in Christ, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. Paul said, I endure all things for the elect's sake that they may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So if salvation is in Christ, here's the question, how do I get into Christ? Paul said, as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Well, why do I need to put on Christ? So that I can contact the blood? Let me ask this question. Where did Jesus shed his blood? In his death, didn't he? John 19, 34. How then do I appropriate the benefits and the blessings of his blood? Romans chapter 6. Paul said, Know ye not that all we who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. When you're baptized into Christ, you contact the blood of Christ. Well, why do I need the blood of Christ? So that I can be saved? So that my sins will be washed away? Now somebody says, I don't see any correlation in being immersed in a watery grave of baptism and being saved from sin. Now let me ask you this question. What correlation do you see between a serpent on a pole and deliverance after having been bitten by a snake? God said, this is what I want you to do. If you do it, you'll live. Numbers 21. Under the new covenant. God is saying, this is what I want you to do. If you want to appropriate the benefits and the blessings of the death of my beloved son, here's what you have to do. It's not up for debate. We're not going to take a poll on this and find out how many are willing to do it and how many are unwilling to do it. God said, here's what you have to do. You've got to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That's an absolute. You've got to be willing to repent of every sin. That's an absolute. You've got to confess the name of Jesus before others. Matthew 10, 32. That's an absolute. You've got to be baptized into Christ so that every sin can be washed away. That's an absolute. If you don't do that, you don't get the benefits and the blessings of the grace of God the mercy of God, the blood of Christ. You won't enjoy the blessings of eternal salvation. So in John chapter 3, when Jesus talked about Moses lifting up that serpent in the wilderness and then making the correlation to him being lifted up, the purpose was to show that salvation is only through him and that he would be lifted up for all of us. Jesus said in John chapter 12, And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto myself. The drawing power of the cross. When you look at the cross, what you need to see is God saying to each and every one, I love you. I love you enough to give my son so that you can live forever. This is what I've done for you. Now this is what I want you to do in order to obtain the benefits and the blessings of the death of my only son. God's terms of admission. 
I don't have the right to alter or modify those terms. What I have to do is simply say, it's what the Bible teaches. So I want to ask you tonight, are you in Christ? Have you obeyed the gospel of Christ? If you haven't obeyed the gospel, why not do that tonight? Why not appropriate the blessings of the grace of Almighty God? You think about all the benefits and the blessings that we have in Christ. Why would anyone say no? Why would anyone reject the Son of God? If you're here tonight and you haven't obeyed the gospel, why not do that this hour? If you're unfaithful to his cause, look, we'd be happy to pray with you and for you. And the assurance is God will abundantly pardon, 1 John 1, 9. Won't you come as we stand and sing?